And we're grateful as well that not only has he been uh, uh, part of our pulpit ministry over the years, but also he serves as a consulting elder. And we just count him uh, just such a wonderful brother in our midst. So uh, with that in mind, let me say a prayer. Lord, we thank you for the, the word that you have sent our dear friend, Pastor Zach, to impart to us this morning. We pray that you would, Holy Spirit, put wings to his words. We pray that you would open our hearts, that we could receive the full measure of your blessing from your wonderful word. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Zach. Yeah, we praise the Lord that we can begin another year around the Word of God, first of all. Last week, I spoke about things that we need to deal with as we end a year. Jesus came to remove the root of sin. And as we look towards the future in this year, I want to speak on the positive thing that Jesus came to do. Jesus came to build fellowship. And in that connection, I want to read 1 John and chapter 1 and verse 2. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 2. It says, The life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father, And was manifested to us. And verse 3. What we have seen and heard. We proclaim to you also. So that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father. And with his Son Jesus Christ. Please be seated. If you look at that verse 3. You find that the. the That eternal life that is manifested in Christ. The purpose of it was. So that. By the gift of the Holy Spirit, we may come into this dual fellowship. Fellowship, first of all, with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, in the vertical direction. And then horizontally with each other. And that's symbolized in the cross. See, in the cross, you see behind me, there is a vertical arm and a horizontal arm. And the vertical arm is always much longer than the horizontal one. Symbolizing that our relationship with our Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ is primary. And it's only when that is right that our horizontal fellowship with each other will be right. And a lot of problems arise in horizontal fellowship between husband and wife, between brothers and brothers, sisters and sisters. The root cause of the problem is that the vertical relationship is not right. Or we have not majored on that. We need to think more about the glory of God's name than about the church. The church will be alright if we seek the glory of God's name first. But if you are more concerned about one another first, we're going to have problems. What does God say? What does God's word say? That is far more important than what people think. It doesn't matter to me what everybody in the church thinks about something. It's irrelevant if God's word says something else. 
And it's so difficult for many people to understand that because they don't study God's word carefully. And so they go so much by the opinions of people. What so-and-so is saying, what so-and-so is saying, what so-and-so is saying. I tell you, it doesn't matter. Let God be true and every man a liar. The vertical is most important. God has given us his word to show us how we are to do his work. And I believe the reason why many churches are not built the way they should be built is because they have not followed the manufacturer's instructions. If you were to get a washing machine or any other expensive product in your home, it comes with a little booklet called the manufacturer's instructions. And you'd never dream of thinking that you know better than the manufacturer. You would never dream of ignoring that and going ahead and using that expensive machine and messing it up. And if you spoil that and take it to the shop, to the store, they'd say, the first thing they ask you, did you follow the instructions? And when I look at so many churches with their problems, what I want to know is, have you studied the manufacturer's instructions? Have you read the instructions of the one who decided to build the church? Or you think you can do it the way you feel? Or the way most people do it? Or the way most churches do it? They could be wrong. And that's why it's important to come to Scripture. Whether it's marriage or a church, or your personal life, Scripture is the guide. But remember these two. The vertical comes first. Fellowship with the Father. So that's what I want to, these are the two things I want to speak on this morning. And I trust that as we come to the end of this year, our fellowship with the Father and Jesus Christ will become so much better, and then I guarantee, I can guarantee this, our fellowship horizontally will become much better too. So 1, Peter, uh, 1 John 1 verse 7, which tells us the principle by which we can have fellowship with the Father. 1 John 1 7. If we walk in the light, as God is in the light, and it said earlier there's no darkness in God at all. If we walk in the light as God is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, that with God and us. And then the blood of Jesus will cleanse us from all sin. The blood of Jesus will not cleanse us from sin if we don't walk in the light. That IF is a very important word in the beginning. A lot of people imagine that the blood of Jesus has cleansed them from all sin. No, it hasn't. How do you know? This is the verse that tells us how we are cleansed. And it says, to cleanse us only if we walk in the light. So it's very important to walk in the light and know what it means to walk in the light. Because that's how I can be free from sin. And that's how I can have fellowship with the Father. And that verse teaches us that the one thing that hinders fellowship with the Father is sin. Because if that's not cleansed away, we can't have fellowship with the Father. So what does it mean to walk in the light? Well, the first thing it means is to be open about it. You know, you go into the dark because you want to hide something. You walk in the light means you're open about it. So the first thing that God requires from us, and you need to understand that, is the easiest thing for every human being to do, for the most down and out sinner to do, and that is to be honest. A prostitute can be honest and say, I'm a prostitute. The woman caught in adultery was honest and was forgiven immediately. The Lord said, I don't condemn you. The thief on the cross in his last moments decided to be honest and say, I deserve this. I don't deserve a few years in prison. I deserve to be killed and taken off the face of the earth because I'm so bad. And the Lord said, really? You deserve to be in paradise. You'll be with me in paradise today. What virtue did he have? Honesty. 
It's an amazing thing that we see in scriptures how Jesus appreciated honesty in people. And I want to say to you, my brothers and sisters, learn this first lesson and never forget it. You can have fellowship with the Father and it can increase as time goes by. God has given us something within us that animals and plants and planets don't have. It's called a conscience. And that conscience is the voice of God that speaks to us when we do something wrong. Most of us, I think all children when they are born have a conscience. But over a period of time we kill it by disobedience constantly. Finally, it's dead. And that's the condition of unconverted person. When we are born again, the Spirit of God comes in and brings that conscience alive again. We can compare the conscience to a weighing machine that wouldn't even register even when you put one ton on it. The needle doesn't move. When we are born again, suddenly that needle begins to move when you put, say, 500 pounds on it. But if we walk in the light, not just stand still in the light, not standing in the same place, but progressing in walking with God, that needle will become more and more sensitive. It becomes sensitive when you put a hundred pounds on it, when you put one pound on it, when you put a few ounces on it. That is how a conscience is meant to grow in sensitivity as we walk in the light. So as we look back over the last year, it's good to ask yourself, has your conscience become more sensitive to sin than it was a year ago? than it was from the time you were converted? If not, you're not walking in the light. You're not in fellowship with the Father. That vertical arm is probably missing, or a small stump. You don't find a cross with a small vertical stump or a long horizontal one. No, the vertical must be, is the bigger one. Our relationship with our Father is fundamental. If we understand this, You'll find that many of your other problems are solved. The first commandment is not love your neighbor as yourself. The first commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind. And the second is love your neighbor as yourself. The horizontal arm of the cross is shorter than the vertical one. Never forget that. Keep that in mind always. And many times when you have a problem, ask yourself, Lord, is there something wrong between you and me? Perhaps that's the cause of my problem with other people. But if we start with the horizontal, we'll never get to the root of the problem. So, we must listen to our conscience and walk in the light. The Apostle Paul said in Acts 24 and verse 16, Acts of the Apostles, chapter 24 and verse 16, in view of this, and I'll come to that in a moment, I do my best a good question for all of us to ask ourselves. What do I do my best for? To make money? To advance in my profession? To complete a certain college course? Paul says, I do my best to keep a good conscience. A blameless conscience. 24-7, always, before God, when I have grieved him in some area, which other people don't know about, maybe in my thoughts or attitudes. And before men, when I've hurt them or wounded them, I go and set it right with them and apologize. How many believers can say this? That as soon as you hurt your husband or your wife, you apologize. You know it, 
You don't do anything about it, your conscience dies. And your fellowship with the Father is broken. Now, I want to say what Paul says in the previous verse. In verse 15, he says in the last part, There will certainly be a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. And it's on, that's why he says, in view of this, I keep my conscience clear. Now, most people would say, well, at the resurrection of the righteous, I'm going to be there because I, was, I accepted Christ 30 years ago. But look what Paul says. He accepted Christ too. But he says, I want to be in the resurrection of the righteous, and I want to, therefore, therefore, I want to keep my conscience absolutely clear before God and men. This is what the apostle taught. What men teach today may be different. And many Christians don't know it's different because they don't read the Bible. Your faith can rest on the wisdom of men and you can be lost. If your faith rests on the word of God, you'll be safe for eternity. So that's how Paul lived his life, keeping his conscience absolutely clear. Jesus once said, the light of the body is the eye. And he said that if your eye is clear, the lamp of your body is your eye. If your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of that. So Luke chapter 11 and verse 34. Luke 11, 34. The lamp of your body is your eye. When your eye is clear, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. That eye that Jesus spoke of, just like, you know, if you close your eyes, your body becomes dark. The eye of the heart is the conscience. What do we do when a speck of dust gets into our eye? One speck. It irritates your eye so much that you stop the most important thing you're doing and wash it off. Jesus said, keep your conscience like that. If it's clear, your whole body will be full of light. What would you do? What would happen if you kept on ignoring the specks of dust that came into your eyes? You would become blind. And that's why God's made the human body in such a way that the eyes are the one that needs to be cleansed all the time. That's why we blink so often. Every time we, our eyes blink, it's washing it. Our eyes are being washed hundreds of times in, in a day. It's the cleanest part of your body. Because God's made it like that because one speck of dust can finally make you blind. Jesus said, keep your conscience like that. And your whole body will be full of light. Dear brothers and sisters, I hope you'll never forget that. I hope you'll never forget the illustration of the eye being like your conscience. Keep your conscience clear. The second condition for fellowship with God, there are only two I want to mention. One is keep your conscience clear before God and men. And the other is choose the way of humility. Always humble yourself. 1 Peter 5 and verse 5 says, in the last part, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, I'll picture it like this, that if I am humble in every situation I seek to humble myself, God will come behind me and push me forward. That's grace. Grace is pushing me forward against the onslaughts of the devil and the lusts in my flesh. If God is supporting you from behind, you can conquer anything in your life, in your marriage, in your church. If God doesn't support you, you're doomed. And it says here that when God sees a person becoming proud, he opposes him. 
That means God turns around and pushes him back. Now I'm already being pushed back by the devil and the lust in my flesh. I don't want God to push me back. And it all depends on one thing. You know, we divide Christians on various bases. Catholics, Protestants, charismatic, non-charismatic, congregational, non-conformist, and uh, rich and poor and educated and uneducated, etc. God is only one way of dividing Christians, the humble and the proud. If he divides this congregation, he'll draw a line and separate the humble and the proud and he'll give support the humble 100% and he'll oppose the proud 100%. So if I want to walk with God and develop my relationship with him, I want him to support me. Remember this, God opposes the proud, he's against the proud. And that's why I spoke last week about the danger How pride was the first thing that came into this universe that brought sin into the world. God opposes it. So if I keep my conscience clear and I'm quick to kill pride as soon as it arises in my heart. Pride of anything. Pride in what I am. Pride in my Bible knowledge. Pride in my ministry or any type of thing. Do you know the number of people who have been destroyed by being proud of their ministry? I've come across so many in my life. You've got to be very, very careful. The more God blesses you, the lower you must bow down. It's like the, the branches in the tree that have the maximum fruit are the ones that bow down the most. The erect branches are the ones that have no fruit at all. Remember that. It's the ones that are most used by God who really humble themselves. The others only have gift. So we read here these two things and Once we know God like this, if we walk with a clear conscience and walk with humility, we will know God in a very intimate way, which is very different from knowing that, the fact that God is my Father. I was born again 54 years or nearly 55 years ago. And for 16 of those years, I knew God as my Father theoretically, but not in an intimate way. And the proof of it was, If a problem arose, I'd be anxious. That's because my father was not with me. I was an orphan at that moment. But theoretically, according to some verse in scripture, I had a father. According to some verse in scripture, I was a child of God. But I was like a child whose father lived 10,000 miles away in another country and would send him letters and gifts, but who never knew him. I think a lot of Christians are like that. They know God as a father up there in heaven somewhere. And they've got verses in scripture where they tell them, you're a child of God, God is your father. But in the moment of problems, you, you can't turn to him. You don't know him. You're anxious, you're worried, you're discouraged. And then you finally turn to man for help. All these are indications that we really don't know God as our father. And that's the thing the devil doesn't want you to know. The Holy Spirit has come to enable us to know God is our daddy. He comes within us and cries out, Abba, which is a Hebrew word for daddy. That's how God wants us to know him. That's what Jesus came for. And that's the purpose of walking in the light. Apostle Paul, when he was writing to the Ephesian Christians, he told them in Ephesians 1 and verse 18, I'm praying that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. See, he wrote this letter. He didn't say read it ten times and you'll understand it. You can read it a hundred times and not understand it. But when the Holy Spirit enlightens your heart, 
as you walk in humility and a clear conscience, he will enlighten your heart so that you will know, first of all, the hope of your calling as a child of God. And secondly, listen to this, the riches of the glory, not of your inheritance in heaven. That's a wonderful thing we're going to get one day. But of God's inheritance in us. Have you ever thought of that? The Living Bible paraphrases it beautifully. It says, God, I want you to know in your heart that God became rich when he got you. That's the meaning of his inheritance in the saints. How many believers ever ever thought that? That Almighty God became rich when he got a sinner like me. That's what the Bible says. It's so difficult to believe that Paul says, I pray that the Holy Spirit will open the eyes of your heart to see it. I thank God for a day in my life that came and I saw it. It made me the most secure person in the world. I was such an insecure Christian before that. But when I understood that God loved me so much that he became rich when he got me, I was not an insignificant non-entity. I wasn't just a social security number. I was a child of God whom he valued and he became rich when he got me. It's so difficult to understand, but it's true. And um, think of a billionaire who's got a lot of factories and many bank accounts with billions of dollars, but he doesn't have any children. And after many years of marriage, one day he has a baby born. That becomes his treasure. More than all his billions in the bank. That's the way we need to see it. More than all of this universe that God created. When he, when he found one person, you, turning to him to receive Christ as your Savior and Lord, and you became a child of God, God became rich. And it's very important for you to have that understanding of how valuable you are to God, how important you are to God, and how precious you are, so that you will know that in your times of trial and pressure, your Father will be near you. He will not let you down. It is impossible. The devil doesn't want you to know that. That's what I mean by that vertical arm of the cross. That brings security. And when I found, when I came to security in my life, it freed me from jealousy of others. It freed me from competing with others. I could cooperate much better because I was relaxed in my own relationship with God. It's all people who are insecure, who are always competing and fighting and fighting for their rights and trying to claim something. You don't do any of that when you're secure in your Heavenly Father. So that vertical relationship is most important. Then I want to speak about the horizontal. If you get our vertical relationship right, it will lead on to fellowship with one another. If you don't have fellowship with one another... There's something wrong within your relationship with your Heavenly Father. That's very important. Fellowship with God leads to fellowship with one another. And I want to turn to 1 Corinthians in chapter 12 to explain this a little more. Because there's no chapter in the Bible that explains the body of Christ better than 1 Corinthians 12. In 1 Corinthians 12, it says in verse 12, even as the body is one. He's speaking about the, our human body as a picture of the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. Even as the body is one and yet has many members. We know that in our body. 
and all the members, though they are many, are one body, so also is the Christ. The church is called the Christ because he's the head. This is an amazing verse. That we are actually members of Christ's body. And just like the members in our human body cooperate and work together, we're supposed to work together. Why do you think these hands work together? When you see somebody playing a musical instrument and all ten fingers work, working so beautifully, how is it they function together? Is it because these two hands are always hanging around together all the time? Sometimes we think if we spend a lot of time together we can build fellowship. It's not necessarily true. These hands, fingers work together only because of one reason. Both of them are perfectly connected to the head. They don't have to always be holding hands in order to work together. If this hand is perfectly connected to the head, all the fingers, and this hand is perfectly connected to the head, they'll function perfectly in any job they do. But if one day this connection of this hand with the head is broken through what is called a stroke or paralysis, then it cannot cooperate with the other hand. And a lot of Christians are like that. They think the problem is I don't spend time with that person. The problem is not that. The problem is your connection with the head is gone. So every illustration we use, whether it's the vertical and the horizontal arm of the cross or the parts of the body function connected to the head, our relationship with one another is dependent on our connection with the head. And when there are problems in a church or problems between people in church, it always starts with a failure in connection with the head or an ignorance of God's word or a disobedience to the principles that Almighty God has laid down in his word for our personal life, for our family life and for our church. Now, I've seen numerous situations where the problem is they don't follow God's word. They follow the principles of taught in by psychologists. Thank God for psychologists. Thank God for medical doctors. But they can't tell me how to build a church. Only God's word can tell me that. You've got to understand that. No psychologist in the world can tell me how to build a church. Or how to build relationships. That's alright out in the world. But for a true disciple of Jesus. God's word is enough. I'll tell you that. I've seen that through all my life. And so we see here in 1 Corinthians 12. Let me read further. The first thing, as I said, is to know how important you are in the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. There's no member in the body of Christ, however important you think you are, that can say to another person, I don't need you. And listen to the even more wonderful thing, the second part of that verse, the head. You know who that is. Jesus does not say to the lowest member of the body, the feet, I don't need you. How arrogant a Christian has to be <laughs> to look at some other believer, brother or sister. and see, I can do without you. Just because that person's not at your level of maturity or intelligence or social level or economic level. Or a different race, perhaps. I want to say to you, my dear brothers and sisters, that if you look down on another member of Christ's body 
because of their race or their intelligence or their lack of Bible knowledge or whatever it is, you are not in fellowship with the head yourself. That's sure. If you're in fellowship with the head, you will have the attitude of the head who does not say to the feet, I don't need you. Who says to the feet, I need you. You're a weak, low member in the body of Christ. You're ignorant of scriptures. You're poor. But I need you because you're born again. You're a child of God. That's the first thing we need to understand. Every person in the church is important and needed. There are some with greater gifts. I know that. God has made it like that. But that doesn't mean the ones with the lesser gifts are not important. The heart is very important. But the heart can't function if the little fingers don't take food and feed the body. It'll die. And when you feel itchy, you know which part of your body helps you? These teeny weeny nails. Not your heart or your tongue or your eye. So you may say, I'm like a little nail in the body. You're pretty important. There are certain situations where only you can help. This ministry of scratching people's back is called encouragement. It's a tremendous ministry to scratch people's back, I tell you. Because they can't reach it themselves. <laughs> it's called the ministry of encouragement. And all it needs is one sentence. One sentence. At the end of your phone conversation. Or at the end of an email. One sentence. That can scratch somebody's back. It can mean a lot. You can be the weakest member in the body of Christ. And you can encourage others. So that's the first thing you need to understand in the body of Christ. Every member is important. Which part of your body would you like to cut off? Saying, I don't need that. Do you treat that, treat any member in the body of Christ like that? We need to value the body, the members, not just the more gifted ones. Once you've understood that, the second lesson is the opposite of that. You shouldn't think that you're so important and that you are the most important member. See, further on here, it says in 1 Corinthians in chapter 12 that... Verse 24, the last part, verse 24, God has composed the body, the second part of that verse, giving more honor to that member which lacked gift. Now, humanly speaking, we give more honor to the member who has a gift. Who do you find you're drawn to? Someone who's very gifted and charismatic. And... But God gives more abundant honor to the member which lacked. He goes around encouraging the weaker members. When my children used to go to school, I used to tell them, think of Jesus in the days when he was in Nazareth when he went to school. Who would he seek fellowship with? Would he seek fellowship with the rich and the clever? Or would he look for that boy who was a bit mentally challenged? Or the one who was limping or stuttering in his speech? I think Jesus would go for that person. That's how God is. He seeks, looks for the member that lacks. And if you're godly, that's the person you, like, you look for, seek to encourage. God gives more abundant honor to the member that lacked. So whenever a person thinks he's very important, there's a verse in Galatians 6 and verse 3 which says, If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. One of the easiest ways for you to deceive yourself 
is to think that you're a very important member of the body of Christ. Really? <laughs> you're not. You're a nobody. And you'll be a blessing to others when you realize you're a nobody. But if you ever think you're indispensable to the body of Christ, you're in danger. So let me read to you a poem called, There is no indispensable man or woman. Listen to this. Sometime when you're feeling important. Sometimes when your ego is in bloom. Sometime when you take it for granted that you're the best qualified in the room. Sometime when you feel that you're going would leave an unfillable hole in the church or anywhere. Just follow these simple instructions and see how they humble your soul. Take a bucket and fill it with water. Put your hand in it up to the wrist. Pull it out and the hole that's remaining is a measure of how you'll be missed. <laughs> you can splash all you wish when you enter that bucket. You may stir up the water galore, but stop, pull out your hand, and you'll find that in no time it looks quite the same as before. The church is not going to collapse because you left or because anybody leaves. The moral of this quaint example is do just the best that you can. Be proud of yourself, but remember, there is no indispensable man or woman. <clears throat> and if you think you are indispensable, you're conceited. And if you think somebody else is indispensable, you're an idolater of that person. Both ways you're wrong. It's only Jesus Christ who is indispensable in the church. He is the head. When we get up to heaven, we're not going to praise Paul and Peter and all. It's going to be Jesus. The Lamb alone is worthy. Remember that. And then we won't be afraid if this person or that person is here or not here. I have been serving the Lord for 50 years nearly. And about 40 of those years has been spent in planting churches, in small villages, some churches, some villages where there was no church for 2,000 years, and towns and cities among completely illiterate people who can't read and write, and among PhDs. And now we've planted about 40, 50 churches in many countries, and I work with elders whom I've appointed in all those churches. And they look up to me. Just so we try to follow the New Testament pattern. It's exactly like in the Acts of the Apostles. Where I read Paul went around and planted churches and appointed elders. And those elders look up to me as a spiritual father, naturally. Seventy or eighty of them. And I'm absolutely convinced I'm not indispensable. I don't believe that one bit. I keep telling them that. Don't ever believe that I'm indispensable. I say, God's work continued on this earth for 1900 years before I arrived on the scene. And it will continue long after I'm gone. And you are gone. For a small bit of time on this earth, God allows us to live here. Teeny weeny bit of time. Just to do a little bit that we can. And then we move on. 
God's work will continue long after you're gone, brother, sister. And long after I'm gone. If, he, if one servant goes, he replaces it with another. I believe that with all my heart. And that's how I worked with my churches, so that no one is dependent on me. So that in every place, we train up new leadership as soon as possible, so they can take over. That's how it's always been done. Because that's what I see in the New Testament pattern. Paul told Timothy, the things you have learned from me, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. Let me read that verse to you. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 2. The things which you have learned, heard from me, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others. Paul was the first generation. He was a man of God. You'd think that Paul is indispensable. No. God allowed him to be beheaded when he was 67. And Paul told Timothy, but Timothy, I'm not going to go away with nothing being done. You've heard, I've spent many hours teaching you something. I didn't make you so dependent on me that you didn't know the Lord. And you've heard that from me. Now you must do the same thing that I did with you. You find other faithful men and entrust it to them. That's the third generation. And they must be able to teach it to others. This is how Paul worked. Up to the fourth generation, a godly man seeks to build the church up to the fourth generation long after he's gone. A conceited man builds a church around himself. You're all dependent on me, folk. That's not the church of Jesus Christ. You know, there's a difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. Before Christ came, there was no head in heaven for man. Israel did not have a head in heaven. So there could not be a body until Christ came and the Holy Spirit came. So they had an earthly head. They had prophets, priests and kings. And always it was one king. They didn't have three, four kings sharing the responsibility. They had one high priest. It was never three, four high priests. And always it was one prophet. One Elijah. When he went away, Elisha. There'd be one Isaiah, one Jeremiah, and even the last of them, John the Baptist. One man. Always, you never find two prophets working together in the Old Covenant. That was Old Covenant. They could not work together because there was no body. But as soon as we come to the New Covenant, after John the Baptist, see, Jesus gathers his disciples and sends them out two by two. Always an expression of the body of Christ. That's how the New Testament church was built. So in the New Covenant, there's no such thing as a single person Leading the church. You never see it in the New Testament. This is a concept that has come into the mind of man looking at other churches. And if we have problems, well, we definitely have problems. If you don't follow the scriptural pattern. Let me show you what scripture says in Titus chapter 1 and verse 5. The Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write this to Titus, who was his co-worker. Titus 1 and verse 5. He tells Titus, I left you in Crete for one reason. That you would set in order what remains and appoint elders, plural, in every city. Let me tell you something that may surprise you. You'll never find a single church in the New Testament led by a single pastor. It's just not there. Search it. God has given pastors as a gift. They're called shepherds. This is the real word. Shepherds, 
just like he gave apostles, prophets. But the leadership of every church in the New Testament was through a plurality of elders to prevent a one-man leadership that would destroy a body. That is God's way. Now, in the corporate world, it is different. They have one CEO. They say, we can't do things unless it's like that. But Jesus is building a body. The CEO is Jesus Christ. And the member, we're the members. That's how he, he did it. And you read in Acts chapter 14 as well. Acts of the Apostle chapter 14. We read here in verse 23. The apostles appointed elders, plural again, in every church and commended them to the Lord. And they are the ones who led the church because there's a balance. All of us are imbalanced. In our ministry, we are imbalanced. I know I'm imbalanced. That's why I work with my fellow elders in my church, even in my home church. I work with others. Because the best of us is imbalanced. The only perfectly balanced man that walked on this earth was Jesus Christ. In him, the glory of God was seen full of grace and truth. All of us have got different emphases, like the right hand is imbalanced. It may be a wonderful, powerful, mighty right hand, but it needs the left hand. That's the balance. This one side of the body needs the other side of the body to balance it. And that's how the body of Christ functions. And that's how it must be if we want to build a church of Jesus Christ. I want to say something about how we can hinder this building of the body of Christ by some bad habits. One of them is, let me turn to Isaiah chapter 11. In Isaiah chapter 11, we read a prophetic reference to Jesus Christ in verse 3. It says about Jesus, he will delight in the fear of the Lord, which is a very good thing for all of us to have. And one result of a man fearing the Lord, this is how I've judged myself. How do I know whether I fear the Lord? Well, here's one indication. I will not make an assessment. Judgment means make an assessment. But by what I see or take a decision by what I hear. Now, I have found around the world, most Christians, as soon as they hear something, and if it's spoken convincingly enough by some man who's got a lawyer's attorney's mind, they, they take it. Not Jesus. He would not make a decision by what he, his ears heard. From our childhood, we have all learned to make decisions and form assessments by what we see and hear. But here it says in the next verse, with righteousness, verse 4, he would judge. That means he would seek the Father. And that's what the Lord showed me many years ago. If you want to know my mind about anything, you've got to stop forming assessments by what you hear from people. Because a, a lot of that information may be incorrect, it's partial, not complete, you haven't seen the full picture, you haven't heard the whole truth, and you form an assessment, you will destroy my work. I said, all right, Lord, I will not form an assessment by what my ears hear. I will hear, I'm willing to listen to everybody in the world, but I want to take that before you in humility and acknowledge, like the Bible says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. So that's one habit that we need to get rid of, is forming immediate assessments on the basis of what we hear. And two, three people say it and we are convinced. Well, that way the devil can destroy any church. 
The devil is an accuser. He's a great rumor monger. And we've got to be very careful that we don't cooperate with the devil in destroying God's work. Build fellowship. Make the vertical more important than the horizontal. You always come back to that principle. The other thing is partiality. In James chapter 2, it speaks about being partial to the rich. But you can be partial towards your friends. That's another way to destroy the body. I've had, as I said, I work with these different elders. And one of the main things I have to urge them always is, dear brothers, don't ever be partial to your friends. Seek God for the power of the Spirit to be totally impartial, to stand against somebody who may be your close friend because he's wrong, because he's not following Scripture. I've had to do that. I'll give you an example of it. Turn to Matthew chapter 16. We read here about Jesus building the church. He tells Peter, Peter, you're a small little rock, Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower it. But to the same Peter, when he tells in the next few verses, I've got to go to the cross and die in order to build this church. He tells him in verse 23, he turns and says to Peter, when Peter says, no, 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 you're not going to go to the cross. He says, get behind me, Satan. There only two times that Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. And both times was when somebody tried to uh, turn him away from the way of the cross. When Satan told him in the wilderness, you come to get the world back for the Father? You don't have to go to that painful way of the cross. Just bow down before me, worship me, I'll give it to you right now. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. The way of the cross is the way Father is appointed for me. Here was another instance. When the previous verses, Jesus said, I'm going to go to the cross. And Peter said, no, no, no. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. There's something I learned from that. The only two instances where Jesus said that. Any voice that tells me to avoid going the way of death to self is the voice of the devil. The way of the cross. And if I hear that voice and avoid the way of the cross, I'll be a stumbling block to God. And the reason is my mind is set on my interest and my gain and building up my name. And not the of, glorifying of God's name. You're seeking your own interests, not God's interests. Ask yourself, my brother, sister. Do you seek your own interests or God's interests? If you put God's interests first, you'll find all the other things are added to you. In Philippians, in chapter 2. Beautiful verses. As you seek unity in a church, Philippians chapter 2, the most complete statement of unity I find is in verse 2. Philippians 2 verse 2. Make my joy complete, he says, by being, look at the expressions he uses, same mind, same love, united in spirit, one purpose. It's one of the most fullest definitions of unity in the whole scripture. Same mind, one, same love, one spirit, one purpose. And how to do it? The next verse, verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness, from seeking your own interests. If you want that unity that I just spoke about in verse 2. Do nothing from conceitedness, but with humility of mind. 
regard one another, not as more spiritual than yourself. That's how some people misread it. Jesus did not consider Peter and Judas as more spiritual, but as more important. That's why he washed their feet. If I want to build the body of Christ, I don't have to consider others more spiritual, but I must consider them as more important. And then it says in verse 5, have this attitude in you, which is in Christ Jesus, verse 5. What is the spirit that Christ had? He did not seek his personal interests. Those are the people who can build the church. So in conclusion, remember the two arms of the cross. Fellowship with the Father primarily. By keeping a good conscience always. At all times. With God and with men. And by walking the way of humility always. So that God never opposes me. And then horizontally. Recognizing that you're valuable. You're a very important person in the body of Christ. You've got something to contribute. Esteeming each brother and sister in the body. And never thinking. I am the most important. Or I'm indispensable. Learning not to judge. By what my eyes see and ears hear. Seeking to be totally free from partiality. And we can build a church right here. That the gates of hell will never be able to prevail against at any time. That is God's purpose. Are you going to cooperate with God in that? I hope so. If so, as we bow in prayer, I want to ask you to think of maybe the two or three things God spoke to you that concerned you personally. Say, Lord... I want to deal with those areas in my life. Don't let the birds of the air take it away. Let's bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we want to be co-workers with you in building the body of Jesus Christ on this earth and in this place. Please help us. Give us the power of your Holy Spirit through which we were baptized into one body. To walk this way in the light, in humility, so that your name can be glorified. On earth as it is in heaven, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much.